My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer Outline. Glad you're here. We're going to read our text. It's in the book of James. We are in a new book. The book of James in the New Testament near the end. James chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 8 of the book of James. James chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth we just sang. We will feast on endless joys. Heaven will never be boring. And it is our inheritance. Oh, keep us, God. Preserve us. Oh, I pray that you would use the word tonight to do that. Thank you for this book. Give us your help, O oh God. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We were in the book of Genesis. We started Genesis last September. We finished. Now we're wading back into the warm waters of the New Testament. We're in the book of James. We're going to be in James for the next couple of months. And this sermon is largely going to be introduction to the book of James. If you wonder, okay, why are you skipping over the trials part in verse 2? It's because next week we're going to talk about trials. This is introduction. And we're going to ask, who is James? Who is he writing to? And what is his main concern? Now, James is fairly unique in the New Testament. A lot of times you read either the Gospels where there are stories of Jesus' life, or you're going to read letters from Paul where there's an, one argument that you're following the whole time. James, he'll bring up a topic, and then he'll move on to another topic, and then he'll move on to another topic, and then he'll cycle around to the first topic, and then cycle around to the second topic. He's going to talk about testing across the letter. He's going to talk about the relationship between the poor and the rich and how we should not show favoritism. He's going to talk about how you get wisdom. He's going to talk about how you use your lips, your tongue, the words you use again and again in cycles. But there's an undercurrent that runs through the entire book. And I think it's this. James wants us to be undivided souls. He wants us to have integrity, 
for us to be the kind of people who really are who we say we are, and we really believe the things that we say we believe when it matters. He wants us to be undivided souls. He wants us to know Jesus and love him with all our being. We're going to get to that, but we're going to ask these three questions. Who is James? Who is he writing to? And I largely gave it away, but what is his main concern? I want you to see it from the text yourself. Okay, so who is James? Verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there are two major figures in the New Testament who are called James. The first James that we encounter is the disciple of Jesus. If you're familiar with the Gospels at all, Jesus has 12 disciples, 12 followers. There are three of them who follow Jesus almost everywhere. Peter, James, and his brother, John. Now, James the disciple, he dies just 10 years after Jesus is crucified and raised from the dead. It's very unlikely that that James, James the disciple, wrote this book. There's another James in the New Testament, and it's James, the brother of Jesus. We know that Mary was the mother of Jesus, and that Jesus did not have an earthly father. Joseph was around, but Mary was a virgin when she gave birth to Christ. Now, Mary and Joseph went on to have other children. We know this, Matthew 13, 55. We know some of their names. One of them is James, the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus through Mary. And this James is going to become a very important figure in the early church. Acts 15 lets us know he was a leader, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Galatians 1.19, Paul's going to say, yeah, that James, the brother of Jesus, is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And the early church testified that it was that James who wrote this book. James, the brother of Jesus. That's amazing, isn't it? To think that someone who grew up with Jesus as their brother would come to worship him as his Lord. I think this is one of the most significant evidences we have that the Bible is true, that Jesus is who he says that he is. If Jesus was a fake, if he was a fraud, his own brother would have known it. I'm guessing no one in here is going to grow up to worship their brother or sister. The odds of that are pretty low. Why? Because you see everything. I mean, if there's faking going on in Jesus' life, James had a front row seat to see it. But he grew up to proclaim that his brother was the sinless savior of the world. That's a big deal. Do you think that you have reasons, good reasons, not to believe that Jesus is who he says that he is? You think you've got good reasons for that? If anyone could have had good reasons to not believe that Jesus was sinless, to not believe that Jesus was the Son of God, it was this guy. 
James knew him from childhood and he worshipped him. I have sometimes told my wife that I look better the darker the room is. So the farther away you are from me and the darker the room is, the better I look. Now, that's true of our heroes. The people we love in this world are heroes. Who's your hero? It's easy to have a hero from the distant past because you don't see their flaws up close. It's, good to, it's easy to have a hero from over the internet because you're not living with them every single day. The closer you are to someone, the more you see what they're really like. I mean, the, the other night, I was driving some people home from Bawadi, and someone in the car said to me, Pastor, you're not anything like I thought you were, having watched you from afar when you preach. I don't know what that person means by that. You can decide for yourself. But it's true, isn't it? The closer you get to somebody, the more you know, the more you see their flaws. And yet James staked his life to proclaim that his half-brother was the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And this James died because he would not deny that the brother he grew up with in childhood was the Son of God. That's amazing. So who's he writing to? Who's James writing to? We see in verse 1, you can look at your Bible, he says, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. If any of you remember, about two years ago, we started the book of 1 Peter, and Peter, when he's writing his letter in 1 Peter, he says that he's writing to the elect exiles of the dispersion. He uses that same word. Dispersion, you know what the word disperse means? It just means scattered. The dispersion is what Jews called other Jews who were scattered across the globe but did not live in the land of Israel. If you know any history of Israel, you know that they were exiled. They were taken out of their land by Assyria and Babylon. God made a way for them to come back. But some of them stayed. They continued to worship the one true God, but they didn't live in the land of Israel, and they were known as the dispersion. Now, lots of commentators, a commentator is just someone who makes comments about the Bible. They put them in a big book. Lots of them say, okay, if James is writing to the 12 tribes of the dispersion, that means he's writing to Jewish Christians. But I think that that's pretty unlikely. And here's why. The church did not separate Jews and Gentiles. There was not a Jewish church, and then you drive down the road, and then there's a non-Jewish church. Now, there was a struggle at the beginning. There were Jews who, when they came to Christ, they looked at the non-Jews and they said, Whoa, if you want to be part of the people of God, you need to become Jewish first, and then you can come to Christ. But you can't go straight to Christ and into the church. That's not how this works. You need to be Jewish first. And the apostles fought to tell the people 
There is one doorway into the family of God, and it's called Jesus Christ, faith in him. I hope you hear this, and maybe for you, you think there's something you've got to do before you come to Jesus. There's one door, faith in Jesus Christ alone. And the apostles fought hard that the church would know that we have one way. Jesus Christ. It's not the law of Moses. It's not anything else. It's Jesus. So it's, it's highly unlikely that James is sending a letter to a church and he's saying, hey, this letter is for the Jewish people in your church, but not the rest of you. That's highly unlikely. What's happening here is that James is calling those who belong to Jesus by faith, he's calling them the 12 tribes of Israel, whether they are ethnically Jewish or not. And there's symbolism here. If you belong to Jesus Christ, you belong to the true Israel. I don't care where you've come from. You belong to the true Israel. If you belong to Jesus Christ, no matter what your ethnic background is. This is important for us. This is really important. We do not divide churches based on their ethnicity. We don't have American church. We don't have Middle Eastern church. There's African church, there's Indian church, there's Pakistani church. They don't get along. We separate out by ethnicities. Now, listen, sometimes it makes sense to organize your church around a language. I mean, we speak English in this church. It's an English-speaking church. But we should never, ever, ever organize our churches around our ethnicity. We have one church of many tribes and many languages and many peoples. And you and I, no matter where you're from, are brothers and sisters of equal standing in God's family. We've got to press hard against the temptation. And I, I think that if you're a human this is a temptation for you. We have to press hard against the temptation to think that people of our own ethnicity, people with the same skin color as us, people with the same cultural background as us, are nearer to us than those that Jesus Christ poured out his blood to put us in a family with. We've got to fight against that. If you find yourself only spending time with your kind of people, stretch yourself here. Stretch yourself. Jesus desires to be worshipped, not by just one ethnic group. He did not come to just save one ethnic group, and he did not come to save lots of ethnic groups that then separate into their ethnic groups. He came to be worshipped by a people from every tribe, tongue, and language who are one body with one Lord and one spirit. That's what he came for. 
If you just stick together with your ethnic group, that looks pretty natural, doesn't it? There's a saying, birds of a feather stick together. It's natural for birds to hang out with other birds just like them. If you saw a pigeon hanging out with the flamingo, and they were hanging out with the blackbird, and hanging out with the falcon, you would say to yourself, hmm, something strange is happening here. And when the world sees the church, they see Filipinos, Ugandans, they see Pakistanis, Israelis, they see Arabs, they see the Irish, they see Nigerians, Indians, all together. They say, huh, something strange is happening here. That's not natural. Exactly. It's supernatural when all the peoples come together and worship. Does your life demonstrate that? If it doesn't, stretch yourself to spend time with, to minister to people who aren't like you. That's one way that God will be known in this city is when that happens and it's visible. This book is written to the true Israel, men and women scattered all over the world from all the tribes who belong to Jesus Christ and the household of God because they trust Jesus to save them from their sins. That's who James is writing to. Now, what's his main concern? What's James' main concern? I think we see a hint of it in verses 5 through 8. Now, we're going to work through this, his argumentation here, so hang in there with me. We're going to get to the main concern, but this is verses 5 through 8. Let's read it together. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask a God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now James is saying an amazing thing here. If you need wisdom, is that any of you? If you need wisdom, you know one of the ways you get it? is by asking God for it. That's incredible. If you, if you then start to think, well, wait, I, don't, I can't bother God with a request like that. I mean, if I keep coming to God asking him things, he's going to get annoyed. And James cuts you off, doesn't he? And he says, no, no. God gives generously without reproach. Without reproach means he doesn't get irritated when he's giving to you. Do you know people like that? You might be someone like that. They ask you for a favor, and you say, mm, okay, and you dislike them a little bit more than you did before. You still help them out, but you're just a little bit more irritated with them than you were before. James says, God's not like that. He's not like that. He's generous, and he gives, and he loves to give, and he does not begrudge you when you come to him for help. What a God! If you ask, it will be given to you. 
I am zealous that we would be a praying church. If God is the giver of every good gift, and he gives them when we ask in faith, I am very zealous that we would be a praying church. If we're not a praying church, we will have zero power. We can get together. Maybe we can, maybe we can even build our numbers up. But we'll have no power to really change lives, no power in this city to see people turn from darkness to light if we're not a praying church. I'm zealous that we would be a people who ask God. But I'm also zealous that you would know the kinds of things that God guarantees he'll give you if you ask him. There are many false teachers spread all over the world in many so-called churches telling people that you can name whatever you want and claim it in prayer if you just have enough faith. And people who say that, they don't really know their Bibles. You're not guaranteed wealth and health in this life. You, you are not. You can ask God for it, and he won't reproach you if you do. <laughs> but you're not guaranteed that he will give it to you. He'll give you something better. But health and wealth are not guarantees. 1 John 5.14 says, if we ask anything according to God's will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in what we've asked, we know we have the request that we've asked from him. So he's saying, if we pray according to God's will, he hears us. That means you've got to pray the things that God says he wants to give you, not just anything that you want. I know, I know Mark eleven twenty four says, whatever you ask in prayer, believing it will be given to you. But if someone quotes that verse to you and says, therefore, ask for anything you want, if you believe, he will give it. Just think they haven't finished reading their New Testament yet. Maybe they haven't made it to 1 John. If we pray according to his will, he hears us. All of that to point out, this is a precious verse. Because this is one of those things God guarantees he will give to us if we ask him. If you ask for wisdom, God will give it. So ask for it, believing, believing. Look at what he says. This is verses 6 and 7, or 6 through 8. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord, he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Okay, just from that little section, we can see a few things. One of them is that doubt is a serious thing. It's a serious thing. And we know that everyone doubts in different ways and at different times. We know that. And because of that, some good-intentioned people say things like, everybody doubts at some time, in some way. God knows our frame. He understands. So it's not a big deal. Well, 
Yes, everyone does doubt at different times in different ways. And yes, God does know our frame. He knows that we're dust. But that doesn't mean it's not a big deal. When we disbelieve God, that's what doubt is. So do you see right here it says, let him ask in faith without doubting. So basically they're opposites. You trust God or you mistrust God. If faith is how we are connected to God in prayer, it's a big deal when we don't trust him. It's a really big deal deal. When we disbelieve, we are questioning the one who never lies and never does anything wrong. The Bible is clear, especially if you read Romans 1. That can be a homework assignment if you want. If you read Romans 1, the Bible is clear. Our problem as it relates to not believing God is not that we don't have enough information to believe him. It's that we don't really like the information that we have. That's our problem. And I don't say this to crush people who are struggling with doubt right now. The New Testament's clear to be merciful, gentle with those who are doubting. But, but just think about this. If faith is what connects us with God, then seeking to build our faith and fight against unbelief in us is one of the most important things we ever engage in. So, if you're struggling with doubt, I have four suggestions. Just four quick suggestions before we keep going in the passage. If you're struggling with doubt, one, recognize that God is not the problem in your doubts. Recognize that he's not the problem. If there is a problem, it's you. Now, that's a very humbling thing. You might say, whoa, if someone's struggling with doubt, you don't tell them that they're the problem. But this is important. It's really important to confess, God, you are pure. There is no darkness in you. I'm struggling right now, and I understand that it's because I'm not seeing what's there. That's an important step to confess that. And then ask God for help. That's two. Ask him to help you. What can happen when you feel that twinge of doubt and you start getting a little panicky? You feel like, oh, I got I to gotta solve this quick. I got to get on Google and answer my problem. When that's not your way out, you need God to help you. So pray to him. Here's three. Search for answers for your doubts from people who treasure Jesus, okay? If you're looking for answers, look for them from people who treasure Jesus. If you, in your doubts, go searching for articles on the internet, you start grabbing books, you start talking to people who aren't believers, don't be surprised when they lead you away from trusting Jesus. Here's one of the traps you can fall into in doubt as you start thinking, okay, I, I'm struggling to know whether this is true or not, so I need to be neutral. I'll look at people who believe and what they have to say. I'll look at what people have, who don't believe say, and that way I can be a neutral judge of the options. The problem is, this isn't a neutral world. 
we're at war. Satan does not want you to trust Jesus. I mean, you can imagine in a war, one night you wake up and you think, I wonder if I'm on the wrong side. And so you walk across the battlefield and you say, maybe I should go talk with the enemy and see what they think about it. Don't be surprised when they capture you. That's what war is. Okay, enough of that. (laughs) Just my plea to you, realize this is not a neutral world. Search for answers for your doubts from people who treasure Jesus. Here's the last one. Know that the way out will come from seeing God's glory in your soul through his word. When you're really struggling with doubt, your doubts aren't cured when you scratch your intellectual itch, when you get your question answered. Usually that's not the biggest problem. I know this has been true for me in seasons of doubt. The way out has come when I've been pleading with God to help me. I've been reading his word. And as I'm reading his word, I see glory. My soul sees glory, and it's undeniable. (laughs) This is true. This is what my soul was made for. So keep in the word if you're struggling with doubt. And pray that God would let you see glory with your soul in a way that's undeniable. That's how you will get out. Doubt is a big deal. James is concerned about it. We're just making our way to the main point here. James is concerned about something deeper, though, than just questions about, okay, how... How is the Bible put together? How can Jesus be God and man? How can I be responsible for what I do and God's in control? It's deeper than that for James. James is concerned that in our souls, we're not trusting God. We don't actually trust his character, who he is. And here's why I believe that's what James is after. Look at verses 6 through 8. He says that the person who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. So a wave that's being driven and tossed by the wind, it doesn't keep its shape. It's always changing shape. And then in verse 8, he says that this kind of person is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. That word, double-minded, do you see it? It's one word in Greek. It's going to show up again in chapter 4, verse 8. The word in Greek is daisukas. Daisukas. So dai means two. Sukas means soul. Daisukas. It means literally a double soul. That your soul is split in two. The problem that James is after is not simply that someone has intellectual doubts it's that they're split in two on the inside. Half of them wants to live for God, but half of them really loves the world. That's what James is concerned about throughout this letter. Over and over again, I'm just going to quote some verses throughout the book to show that James really is concerned 
that we are who we say we are, that we don't say we love Jesus, but really we love the world. We love Jesus on some days or in some places, but not on other days and in other places. So listen to this. James 1, 22. He says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. So he says, you can deceive yourself because you show up and you listen to preaching, but you don't actually do it. You have a double soul. James 1.26, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle or control his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So he's saying, some of you might think, I'm a very religious person, but you don't control what comes out of your mouth, James is saying, that's worthless. It's not the real thing. Your soul is split in two. You're not really loving God. You think you do with half of you, but really you love this world. James 2, 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? I believe. But then you don't live like it. James 3, 10 through 12. James talking about the way people talk. He says, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Does a spring of water pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. You are wholly devoted to Christ, or you belong to this world. A spring doesn't give salt water and fresh water. You can say you're an olive tree, but if you keep producing figs, that's what you are. Last one, James 4, verse 4. James has strong words here. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is war with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. He's saying you can't play both teams. You belong to God or to this world. So James's deep concern is that this church would be a people of integrity, that who we say we are is who we really are when no one's watching, that what we say we believe is what we really believe when it matters. We need to hear this, Redeemer. We need to hear that you can come week in and week out, sing the songs that we sing, pray the same words that we pray. You can say you believe everything that's written in our statement of faith. But when it comes down to it, if you don't live like you really do believe those things, It profits nothing. Please, please, I'm just going to reiterate that. You're not a Christian because you sing the songs here. You're not a Christian because you show up week after week. If you love these words and you say, God is in control of all things. He is. And then you lose your job and you freak out to everyone around you. Does your faith mean anything? 
Or if you say, oh God, I love your holiness. I'm singing songs about your purity. And then you go home and you look at pictures of people on your computer as objects for your pleasure. You have a double soul. And you should not, James says, expect anything from God. Let us not be half in and half out. Being double-souled, what he means is that you're really just half-hearted. And that's a miserable way to live because you never really get to enjoy the full joy of any one thing. If you're going to be worldly, if that's the course you're going to take, be worldly. Don't let religion spoil it for you. You might have 20, 30, 40 years of great fun before you're destroyed. But if you're going to know the endless, infinite joy of being Jesus Christ, don't let living for this world suck the life out of you. We shouldn't be like the Christians in Laodicea. In the book of Revelation, Jesus says, I wish you were hot or cold. But because you're neither hot nor cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. They were one leg in the world, one leg in the church. That's a miserable existence. Test yourself. Test yourself. Is Jesus your everything? If this is you, you call yourself a Christian, maybe because it benefits you some other way in the world, but that's why you do it. That's why you show up to church. You sing the songs. You say the prayers but you don't love Jesus with your whole heart, it will benefit you nothing. But if you embrace all of Jesus, he will save all of you to the end. If you embrace all of Jesus, his death on the cross will cover all your sins. And he will give you the Holy Spirit and he will give you all of himself. And someday, you will know endless pleasure in heaven, having all that God is poured out on you in kindness for all time. Will you receive him? Not in part. You cannot have Jesus in part. You can't have him with half of your soul. You must receive all of Jesus with all that you are. So, if that's you and you're half-hearted, receive him. If you've never received him, receive him. All of him. And let's let this book, let's let the book of James, as we go through it the next couple of months, let's let it test us, let's let it try us, so that we would come out knowing and treasuring him with our soul united in worship to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Oh, would we be people who love you with all our heart, all our mind, all our strength. Oh, Lord, have mercy on us. Would you use this book so that we would embrace all that you are for us? Help us now as we sing to praise you with all our hearts. 
It's in the magnificent name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Let's stand and worship together.